Correct one thing Conrad said. Hour and a half, you forgot who's speaking. What's that? Hour and a half long service, you forgot who's speaking today. <laughs> Brace yourselves. <laughs> yeah. And actually, pastor, elder, same, same definition, same job description. And um, I'm honored to serve as an elder here with John and Conrad. They, um, they sharpen me. They make me better. Um, they stretch me in my faith. And it's just a, it's a, it's a great thing to serve with them. So uh, today, we're going to con- kind of continue in where Conrad has been on this counterculture issue and that the fact that the church is clearly, and we'll see this today, the church is clearly called to stand up against a culture that is ungodly and unbiblical. And we will not shrink from that responsibility at this church. And our goal is really simple. It's to equip you to be able to stand up against the culture. And uh, we talked about that some in our first hour, and I never can get up here without reminding people that if you're not plugged in, uh, 9 o'clock for small groups, I really encourage you to do so. We've got some great classes, great teachers. Uh, Philip's getting ready to start another one because we keep growing, and it's an awesome place to come and really get, you know, in here is good, we worship, we learn, but in those settings, your roots get really, really deep so that when the storms of life come along, you stand firm. That's where those things are built. Relationships build out of those, and so I just highly encourage you to do that. Um, all right, well, let's get started, and we'll start with going to, the word, going to the Lord in prayer one more time. Father, I'm so unworthy to stand here, and yet you have called me to do so. Lord, these words today, Lord, let them come from you. Let them bring glory to you. My, my, my goal is to edify you, Lord, to bring these people up, Lord, to point them towards the cross. And that, way, that we would be able to be bold and stand against a culture that is so against you. Father, thank you for this time together. And we ask that you would use it for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. My heart grieves for the church, not this church, but the church in general, because the church is falling for the lies of the world instead of standing for the truth. The church has a responsibility, as I said, to counter the culture uh, with the truth, and that's coming straight from here, and I won't give you anything that's not from God's word. So as you read this, John 14, 6, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes through the Father but through me. That's truth. And we got to know that truth, and we got to make sure other people know that truth. The Bible also uh, is, the Bible itself is called the word of truth. This is the most important thing that you'll ever own in your life, is this book. And it's called the word of truth. And it wasn't so much that that somebody else called it. Jesus said, Jesus said to the Father, your word is truth. Sanctify them, talking about us, the saints, in the truth. So sanctify means set apart. So if we look at that, what is is Jesus? So if you're a born-again believer, and this is what Jesus is praying to the Father for you and for me. He says, Lord, your word is truth. Right here, here, this is truth. Set them apart in the truth. Set them apart from what? The culture. 
that's around us. And we only do that when we know God's word, and then we can live by God's word. The church is to proclaim the truth in order to bring deceived souls to the knowledge of the truth. Why? Because that's what saves. And that's what we're called to do. As a result of the importance of the truth, and you have to kind of look at it from both angles, because of the importance of the truth, it's always going to be under attack from the prince of this world. Right? The, all along the way, here's what Satan does. He does everything he can to obliterate the truth, to cover the truth, to hide the truth. And I think here's the most important one, to twist the truth, to bring about lies and deceptions. If you ever get a chance to read uh, C.S. Lewis' uh, screw tape letters or watch one of the, one of the, one of the uh, picture or the movies of it, it's really good because it's this, this under, under demon and he's learning about how to trick us, how to trick lost people, but also how to trick saved people. And that's oftentimes done, just twist the truth a little bit. Throughout God, throughout, throughout history, God's people, whether it's Israel in the Old Testament or the New Testament church, has had times where we have abandoned the truth or lost our heart for the truth. And I think right now we see an abandoning of it. Um, and so they failed to, and here's the key, there's a key word today, contend. Contend for the truth. And what's interesting is, I don't know about you, but when I think about truth and who comes against truth, I tend to think it's the world coming against the church. And so what do we need to do? We need to build up a wall or get our shields out and deflect them all. But the reality is, is that the deadliest assaults against the truth come from the inside of the church. Inside. Let's look at a couple of verses that help explain that to us. Jude, which is a little book in the back of your Bible, it's a small book, and Jude was a half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote, this, he wrote this, um, this small book to combat what's called apostasy, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But what he saw was he was concerned against this corruption coming from within the church, and so he writes the church to warn them, to warn us, to be what? To be on the alert for it. So listen to what he says. This is Jude 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long... And by the way, he's writing to believers... Long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Licentiousness just means a wanton or a purposeful disregard for truth. So he's writing about people that will come into the church from within the church that do what? That, that they, they turn the grace of God, they spin it around so that it is, it is they're throwing it in the face of truth. These certain persons are called apostates, and that's what he writes this book about. 2 Peter 2 says, and again, here's another apostle writing to the church, warning us about, about apostasy coming from the inside. 2 Peter 2 says, False prophets also arose among the people, as there will be, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of the truth will be maligned, and their greed, and in their greed they will exploit you with false words. See that? And because of them, the way of the truth, the gospel message of salvation through Jesus Christ, will be maligned. Turn to just... just Canted, right? That's what Satan wants. If he can get it maligned, then what he does is he allows people to sit in churches thinking they're of God and they're going to hell. 
That's what his game plan is. We have to know that so that we can counter it and be aware of it in these things. Apostasy is, the word apostasy really means knowing the truth to some degree and then rejecting it. But what's interesting is far, the, far worse than knowing and rejecting it and leaving the church is knowing some, rejecting it, and staying in the church to undermine it. And that's where we come up with this idea of apostates. It's not, a, it's, not a, it's not a word about people from Paul and Peter's time. It's a word about people from Paul and Peter's time and our time as well. And we'll look at some examples. Uh, Jude 3 says, Beloved, and this is an interesting statement. All right, let, me, let, me, let me set it up for you. Jude is, and what we, we glean is, Jude is writing to the church. He's writing to the church, and he wants to write about all the great things that he sees God doing. And so we can all acknowledge that at times, right? We see God is doing super things in my life. Man, he, here and there, he's provided again and again and again when I thought things were bad. But he says, you know what? I can't because there's so much apostasy. The church is turning on its head. So here's what he writes. Jude 3, beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation. He wants to encourage us in the Lord. That's what he wants to do, man. Stick to it. You know you'll got it. He says, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. Contend earnestly. You know what contend earnestly means? Fight. Fight. Yeah, thus Jude called the church to fight for the truth in the midst of intense spiritual warfare. And that's where Conrad's been going with this, this series that, that, on the culture, is that we're not called to put a wall up around ourselves. We're called to combat the culture and say, Thus saith the Lord. Jude is not the only New Testament writer who talks about this corruption to the church from apostates. That's why you've you got to know it's such an important thing. It's not just Jude and his you know, four pages in the back of your Bible. Peter wrote about it, James wrote about it, John wrote about it, Paul wrote about it, and Jesus wrote about it, warned us about it. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, okay, think about Sermon on the Mount, is probably his most famous sermon that he gave, and here's what he says, Matthew 7, 15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves, you will know them by their fruits. And so where are we going with this? Hang on, we'll get there. Matthew 24, 11, Jesus said, again, many false prophets will arise to mislead. To mislead what? To mislead people into thinking that they, they have got salvation when they don't because the truth has been twisted. And they think as long as we're going to church, that must mean we're saved, and it doesn't work that way. Acts 20, 29, Paul spent three years at the church in Ephesus. I think the longest he ever spent in any one place. He builds this great church. If you go read about it in Acts 17, 18, 19, 20, he, they spread the gospel all over that part of Asia. It's what it literally says, all over Asia the gospel was spread. And as he's getting ready to leave after three years, he pulls the elders together. It'd be like pulling Conrad and John and I together. And he sits with them, and here's what he says. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. Be on the alert. And I think you can dovetail that right into what, um, right into what Jude says, which would be to contend earnestly. If you're alert, then you know what's happening. When you're alert, you see the problem, and then you go after it, and you contend earnestly for the faith. 
Jude wrote to condemn two things. He wrote to condemn the apostates and to urge believers to contend for the faith. He called on the discernment on the part of the church and a rigorous defense. But here's the key. You can't have discernment if you don't know God's word. That's, what you, that's where you fall for, for these things. Um, even when the New Testament was being written, what's interesting, you think about it. The New Testament is being written, so put yourself in you know, 36 to 70 uh, A.D. You've got apostles still alive. You've got people performing, literally performing miracles upon miracles upon miracles. And within the church itself, you've got apostasy coming in trying to undermine it. That's why they all wrote about it, because they all saw it. And they had to straighten much of it out if they could. It was such a universal problem that Paul made the qualifications for elders, you must be able to guard doctrine. Well, you can't guard doctrine unless you know it, so that is a qualification for an elder. Must be able to, ref- to guard doctrine means to refute false doctrine. And you say, no, that's not what, that's what, not, got, what, not what God's Word said. So the church has always been beset by heretics and false teachers, and history teaches us that. Um, obviously, those of us that love truth can't you know, automatically shy away from every fight over doctrine, but Christians need to be willing and prepared to contend earnestly for the truth. In other words, it's not when we say fight against it, it's not fight against it as in putting people down in a negative way. It's like Conrad has been preaching about, truth in love. And so what you do is you take it and you square it away with this so that when somebody has some false doctrine that you believe is false and you've secured it, you've made sure that's not what God's Word says, then what you simply do is say, hey, man, can can you read this for me and and tell me how that jibes with what you're saying? It's teaching. We want to teach with compassion and with love. I think the most pressing issue that we have in the church today, and when I say church, not this church, but the church in the Western world, in this country especially, is the problem of being too broad-minded and sinfully tolerant. Mm -hmm. We settle for shallow, false unity with people in whom we're actually called, commanded to avoid, or whose errors we are morally obligated to refute. Morally obligated to refute. Again, in love. John MacArthur wrote this. He said, what is especially troubling is that the most, the most harmful attacks, we really quote in Scripture, most harmful attacks on the gospel come from within the church itself. The typical modern evangelical church has abandoned Scripture as its pillar and foundation, leaving it vulnerable to all sorts of doctrinal errors and aberrations. Instead of defending and proclaiming the truth, Claiming the true demands of the gospel, the church has absorbed and adopted the very worst traits of an ungodly culture around it. Whether on a basis of works theology or liberal theology or prosperity theology, it's all corrupting apostasy from the inside. And one of the most pressing issues currently in our day in the Western church is the concept of social justice. You hear the words a lot, social justice. And, you know, if you just take them from a shallow perspective, it sounds good. But let's figure out whether it is or not. I believe it is apostasy within the church, and I'll show you that it is. And, by the way, it hasn't just crept into the church. It's blown the doors off of the church. So let me give you an example. If you go to our website, there is a tab on our website that says what we believe. 
And if you click on it, it'll break down our doctrine, what we believe about God, Jesus, the Trinity, down and on and on and on and on. So I printed this, which is from a mainstream denominational church. I'm not going to tell you what it is, who it is. Mainstream denominational church who probably has 500 people sitting in their service this morning. They don't have a belief statement. They have a values statement. Let me give you just a few highlights. We are open to the transforming power of God's spirit. We seek to be accepting of all people, allowing room for diverse interpretations of faith. That's not truth. That's diverse interpretations. What they're saying is diverse interpretations of truth. I could read more of these, but it gets you so mad you won't be. But let me give you the social justice aspect of it. We seek to identify injustices and the needs in our lives, in our community, in the world, then to develop and provide resources, activities, and programs to address these needs while respecting the dignity of all people. That's social justice in the church. That's what their focus is, is finding injustices. I'm going to tell you something, people. Let me give you a flashlight here. Life ain't fair. So better deal with it one way or another. Um, this is awesome here. Our awareness of our participation in the vast creation of deep time, space, and matter, that is our source and purpose. Yeah, absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. Um, I'll give you a couple more just because it does, it get, it'll get you all agitated. Our hope is the anticipation of the future with expectation of meaning and purpose that is grounded in knowledge and experience of history, both shallow and deep. You know what love is? Love's the attraction that holds everything together. Yeah, oh yeah, it's great. And here's another, here's another justice. Okay, I want you to see the undermining of the church through this concept of social justice. Natural equity within and throughout the universe, void of scarcity and filled with enough for everyone and everything to have meaning and fulfilled purpose. That's communism, is what that is. Socialism and communism. Listen to the subtlety of the words. You just got to hear this because you got to understand what's coming into the church. Natural equity within and throughout the universe, so that's for everybody, okay? Void of scarcity. That means nobody is without. Everybody has. And guess what? If somebody doesn't have and you have, then you need to take what you have and give it to those that don't have. That's what that means. Filled with enough for everyone. Hmm. We are called to remember the inherent divine goodness created from the earth. I won't read any more. I could. They're worse. Do you see how social justice has crept in? So that's what we're going to talk about really today. And here's a statement that I want you to see in here because it's the opposite of what social justice and a church like that means. We are not in the world to reform it. Now think about that. We are not in the world to reform it. The prince of this world is not going to allow us to reform it. Our mandate, our mandate, the church, is not political. It's not social, and it's not economic. Our mandate is to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Amen. Period in the story. 
That's it. We've talked about that. We talk about that with this issue of abortion. You can pass all the laws you want about abortion, can, can't, can after next weeks, can at all, whatever, whatever, whatever. Abortions are still going to happen. You realize that, don't you? The only thing that will eliminate abortion completely is when everybody in this country gets saved by Jesus Christ. Because then they'll see it, they'll understand it. So again, we're not here to reform things in this world. What we're here to do is God put us on a specific person. He saved us. The reason he didn't take us home is because he's got a job for us to do. And the primary job, you can say, is the gospel really is to bring glory to God. And how do we bring glory to God? When we tell people about who Jesus is and their sin problem and how, the, how he can save them, and then when they get saved, what happens, what happens with the angels when somebody gets saved? They all, they all cry out, right? That brings glory to God. So our mission is to bring glory to God via that idea. Um, to be faithful to these commands, we have to have sound biblical knowledge. So whenever the calling, and here's what I, here's what I want you to see, and that's where this church has gone, and I, I want you to see how subtle it is. In doctrine, in, 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 in what we believe, what the calling of the church is, there are multiple things. The bullseye, number one, is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Then we have these peripheral doctrines is what I call them. So what Satan wants to do is take a church and get their core off the bullseye, so then the, the gospel message gets out here as a peripheral. It's occasionally touched on, and then they want the, the peripheral doctrines to come to be the center. And so that's what they've done. So the center of their church is fighting injustices in society. That's not what we're called to do. And, I, and hopefully, as we go through this, you'll see this lay out really easily. And, we'll use, and again, we'll use Scripture to back that up, not just my opinion. If I can get these pages apart. Um, social justice, as I said, as a tenant of faith, as a, as a portion of faith, is an apostasy. So we're fighting against a churchy culture that says, let's love everybody, let's get along, let's be tolerant and inclusive. D-E-I. Diversity, equity, and inclusion has gotten into the church. The gospel, by the way, just so everybody is clear on this, is not tolerant. It's not tolerant. The New Testament is full of references of how it separates people. Jesus said, they hate me, they'll hate you. Jesus said the gospel will split families apart. Probably maybe split some of y'all's families apart. The battle is right here inside the church. And I call it like I see it. We have demon-controlled preachers. We have demon doctrines. We have liars. We have people that do not want the truth to go forth. And those are the apostates. And they undermine the truth. 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4 says, People, and this is what it is, people will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and turn their ears away from truth and turn to myths. So let's take a minute and use logic to, 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 to look at the difference between justice and social justice, and we'll look at it from a biblical perspective, and we'll look at it from a non-biblical or worldly perspective and see if the word, see if the concept of social justice really makes sense. So, justice demands that everyone is equal under the law. So if you look at the laws of our land, justice demands everybody's equal. A simple example of that is speed limits. 
If the speed limit's 50 miles an hour, it's the same for everybody. You don't get a pass. Certain people don't have to follow. That's justice. That, that's where the law is. So that if you get pulled over and the, the, and the officer says, well, you were going exceeding the speed limit, there's a penalty for it. If there was no speed limit, he could never pull you over. There's no justice. So he might pull you over and say, well, I, you know, I don't think you should go more than 50 on this road. Now, you might get another one that says, I don't think you ought to go more than 30 on this road. So you see, if the police officer doesn't have a set standard, then they're just going to give you a ticket for what they think is right. Hold on to that logic for a minute. Biblical justice demands that everyone is equal under the law of God. Right? All are sinners is what it says. You must be born again. It is by grace through faith. No one comes to the Father but through me. Social justice demands that everyone be equal politically, socially, economically, and they use man-made mechanisms to achieve that. In other words, if that's not fair for you, then it is for me, we should implement a plan to give what you have to those who don't have. Here would be a simple example of that. Someone chooses to take out tens of thousands of dollars in student debt only to figure out that the job they got can't pay it back and now they want you and me to pay it back because it's not fair that they made a decision that impacted them. You know what? I make decisions all day that impact me. Some good, some not so good. Choose to sin, choose to suffer. That's this whole equity thing. Everybody wants to be, everybody should be equal, which is socialism and communism. Social justice is built around the premise that all men are created equal, therefore all should have the same lot in life. Well, if that's true, why is my wife sick and yours isn't? Why do some people's children's die? children die? That's not fair, is it? Understanding the sovereignty of God would help. Justice is first and foremost about truth. Here's some scriptures. Matthew 5. God sends rain on the righteous and unrighteous. You know what that means? That's just what I was saying there. I'm a believer. My wife's a believer. She's sick. I know other people that are believers. Their wives aren't sick. I know people that are unbelievers whose wives are sick. I know people who are unbelievers whose wives are not sick. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. That debunks this idea that everybody should be socially equal. And here's now, this is where we really get into what God says about these, these things. Exodus 23. Do not follow the majority when they do wrong or when they give testimony that perverts justice and, they do, not, and do not slant your testimony in favor of a person just because that person is poor. Now it goes around the, it comes around again. Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in judgment. No injustice in judgment. And you shall not be partial to the poor nor defer to the great. He says don't show partiality to anybody. All are level. All is even. The, foot, the ground at the foot of the cross is even. Nobody got there because they were better than somebody else, or God doesn't love somebody more than he loves you or me. It's all equal. And then let's go to the New Testament, James 2, 8 and 9. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If you love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So if God gave us his justice via the truth of Scripture, this is what plagues me. God gave us the truth through here. Then why do churches fall for the concept of social justice? 
because I think, this is my opinion, but I think it backed up. Fallen, in fallen man's mind, biblical justice as defined by God doesn't seem fair. They look at this, I don't like that. Huh? Why is there only one way to go to heaven? This thing right here, and I won't read it anymore. This thing right here talks about how many different ways you can go to heaven. That there is not one way, there is not one way there. It says it right there in their values statement. See, people don't think that's fair. What is it, how, why is it right? What gives you the right to say there is, your way is the only way? See, that's unfair. Justice requires a standard. We talked about that. The standard is, just requires a standard, like the speed limit. So biblical justice, by its very definition, uses or requires the law of God as a standard. We'll call it the truth. So God's law is the standard by which we have to measure everything out. We talked about that this morning. Truth comes from God's word, not from Raymond's opinion, and clearly not from Cliff's opinion. <laughs> Come on, people. Y'all got to have some levity in here, man. Clearly. Clearly. Uh-huh. Um, so biblical justice, by its definition, requires us to use this law of God. That's our standard by which we do. In contrast, social justice doesn't have a standard, but instead sets guidelines, and the guidelines are constantly moving. That's where intersectionality comes into play. And I know Conrad's talked about it, but you've got to understand interse intersectionality is who, whoever is the biggest victim gets to make the determination of what's right and wrong. So, you hear this statement a lot. Hate speech is not free speech. I haven't read the Constitution, number one, if you've done that. But that's what I say. Hate, so, who gets to define hate speech? And this is where intersectionality comes in. Brace yourselves. This is ugly. So, as a white male patriarch, I have no say. Now, if you're a white female, you're a victim to me. So, therefore, what you determine is hate speech is hate speech. Now, if you're a black female... You are, you are a bigger victim than the white female, so then you get to define what's hate speech. Now, if you're a white homosexual woman, then you trump the black woman, so therefore you get to define what hate speech is. I'm not making this up, people. Now, if you're a black homosexual female, you trump the white homosexual female, you get to determine hate speech. I mean, where does it end? You know they put, you know they fire people in this country today for using wrong pronouns? Mm -hmm. Yeah, don't think it's not coming, people. So we need social justice to even things out or make things fair. The have-nots over the haves, the poor over the rich, female over male, black over white. So what is fairness? Fairness is subjective. It's not truth. Fairness is subjective. Again, it's contrary to God's standard. Romans 2.12 Romans says, For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. So, is there a place for compassion in a system of justice? The Bible speaks at length about what? Caring for widows, orphans, those less fortunate. Right? We love God, we love people, and we serve. But watch the difference. Loving God, by implication here, means that you're born again. How do you become born again? Through the compassion of the Lord on you when you realize you don't stand up to the law. So follow that. The law is justice. So compassion follows justice, not the other way around. So how did you get saved? You get saved because the law 
which is just, standard of justice, you realize I don't measure up to the law, I've got a problem. Then the compassion follows the law because then you come along and you realize, but Jesus died on the cross for me. So the compa his compassion is what follows the justice, which was the law. So it, it, it always has to come first. James 2.18 says, watch this, if you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. So let me, let me rephrase that. If you have faith and I have works, show me your faith without any compassion and I'll show you my faith by my compassion. Do you see it? It follows one after the other. Through, through salvation, the Holy Spirit gives us, and what it tells us is the Holy Spirit at salvation gives us an unnatural desire to have compassion for others. Because as individuals, right, our default mechanism, at least mine is, is about me. It's all about me. But through salvation, God has changed me to say it's about them. And it's about a lost world. So compassion followed the justice. Social, economic, racial, environmental justice is all subjective. Any form of social justice, this is a great, I read this and it took me, I was like a dog. I put my head sideways. I couldn't figure it out. Social justice, any social justice that seeks to correct justice undermines justice. You'll get that later. So any form of social justice that seeks to correct justice undermines justice. Why? Because justice keeps moving. So it undermines. So what I say is, is it should be the standard. Then social justice comes along to correct what my standard is, basically says my justice isn't justice. Do you see why we got to go to God's word? Because otherwise we're just lost and foolish and following all these things. Leftism, Marxism, socialism all hold that weak or good and powerful or bad. So why is the apostasy, again, of social justice so prevalent in the Western churches? We read it in, in uh, 2 Timothy. We'll get it here in 1 Timothy. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from faith, pay attention to deceitful spirits, doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience with a branding iron. There's no... That, that, that's uh, 1 Timothy 4.1. They will pay attention to... Deceitful spirits. Hey, we're all about injustices and figuring out ways to help people with their injustice, with their unfair lives. That's a deceitful spirit. Again, that's not coming out and saying God doesn't exist, but it's, keeping, it's taking people off of that because they're not going to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ if they're always worried about these, these, these social justice issues. There's no presentation of the gospel in these churches. It is weak, self-centered, trivial, superficial, shallow, um, not to bring people to salvation, but get people focused on issues that don't have to do with Jesus Christ. Keep Jesus on the sideline, get them focused on social issues, and then we win. That's from the enemy. So the apostate church has fallen for the, the lies. I repeated, I said this earlier, but I repeat it. Let's love everybody. Let's get along. Let's be inclusive. How could that sound bad? Churches don't like biblical, biblical principles as binding. Nobody wants to be told what to do, and the Bible tells us what to do. And the Bible tells us our thinking is wrong. Well, I don't want somebody to tell. I don't really like anybody telling me anything I'm doing wrong. But God's word does that. And again, in these churches, they, there is, and that's what you don't see in this, in this. You can read this whole value. It's five, six pages long. 
you will see nothing about repentance, judgment, sin, hell, heaven, self-denial, laying down the law of God against the sinner shows us our brokenness. The gospel, um, it's easier, and this is another, another reason why I think these churches do it. It's easier to dispense compassion than it is to hold people to a biblical standard. Just love people, okay? Well, just loving people and go get people saved. And it's, you know, I don't like doing some of the things that it says that I need to do and act and behave and think. But so it'd be easier to say here, you know, let's, 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 do, let's, let's, have, let's have people come in for food and love on the community. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But if we love them, if we bring them in to quote unquote love on them and we don't tell them about Jesus, we're foolish. We're foolish. We're wasting our time. We have to tell people and point people to Jesus. Um, another great, another reason for it is the calling of the church is not to seek social justice, but to proclaim the gospel. We're going to look at Colossians 3 and Ephesians 6, and here's what I want you to see. Here's a couple things. So you say, well, well weren't they compassionate in the Old Testament? Didn't they care about, or in the New Testament, didn't they care about social, social issues? My answer to that is no. Now, he did say, Scripture in the Old Testament New Testament talks about taking care of widows and orphans and those less fortunate. So, again, that's the compassion that follows. But here's what I want you to see. A couple of interesting things. In Ephesians 6, 5, Paul writes, and he says, slaves, so he's writing to believers, writing to believers, don't miss this. Slaves, obey your masters. Hmm. So that means that you had born-again people that were in the church that were slaves, and you had born-again people in the church that were masters in a social situation. Paul commanded slaves to be obedient to their masters. The words obey, it's a military term, which means to follow orders. Now, if you go back and you look in Paul's time, um, in the Roman Empire, how many, how many people were slaves? Well, I've read any, anywhere from 25 to 50% of the people. And again, you got to remember every time they took over a people, people were enslaved. So there was different level, for lack of a ter better term, of slavehood, if you will. But the Christian gospel, um, uh, the, uh, slavery was a very cruel system and obviously a very sinful system. But in the church, some slaves, it's interesting because you got people, in, you, had, you had slaves in a church. Can you be, here, we're in church, we got slaves and masters, and then we leave out of here. If, if I'm a slave my, and Marvin's my master, we go out of here and Marvin's going to tell me what to do because I serve him. It seems ironic, doesn't it? So uh, in Galatians 3.28, it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for all of you are one in Christ. So if we put that in today's term, it would be the same thing. We're neither Jew nor Greek, rich nor poor, male nor female. We're all one in Christ in this. So in the church, slave masters and slaves were equal as brothers in Christ, but yet out in society they weren't. So does this mean that we should be... We should, we, uh, Paul didn't speak out. Why do you think that is? If the social issues, social justice... Is, if social justice is biblical, which my premise today is that it is not, then how come Paul and Peter and James and John, how come nobody spoke against slavery? It was a bad social issue. Why didn't they speak against it? Roman slavery was neither condoned nor condemned by. He didn't say it was good, and he didn't say it was bad. He merely accepted the structure of society as it was. Paul's command to Christian slaves was to be the best slave you could be. Why? Because in all that you do, work as if you are working for the Lord. So if your lot in life 
is uh, that you own, uh, you own a Gulfstream jet and get to jet all around the world for lunch and dinner and breakfast. That's your lot in life. If your lot in life is you're the guy filling the jet up with jet fuel, that's your lot in life. That's what it is. And so it doesn't matter. What matters is not what you do socially or occupationally. What matters is do you know Jesus Christ? That's what matters, and that's where our focus needs to be. Um, again, I'll just read one more verse on this. On Colossians 3, 22 and 20 through 24, it says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything you do, not only when their eye is on you to win your favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work, with all, work at it with all your heart, as in working for the Lord, not for men. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. He didn't tell anything to the slaves about striking or picketing or how unfair it was of what their lie. He just said, do your job. If anyone ever had a cause to speak out against social injustices, it would have been the writers of the New Testament. And they didn't, and Jesus didn't mention it either. God's way to achieve justice isn't man's. Um, in fact, what's interesting, if there's no such thing as social justice in the Scriptures, which there's not, because how does man solve problems? Violence? Struggle, rebellion, revolt. God's way is for Christians to show love, integrity, honesty, and hard work. It takes faith to believe God, but history has proved that it works when it's tried. Because what ultimately brought down slavery in the West? Christianity. Right? Wilberforce. Christianity is what brought slavery down. So, uh, Aaron, you guys can come up if you want to close with this. John 14, 6, Jesus declares, I am the truth. Jude 3 tells us we have a job to do. Contend earnestly for the faith or the truth. 1 Timothy 6, 20, Paul reminds Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. So I've given you this word. I've given you the truth. He says, Timothy, guard it. 2 Timothy, now this is his swan song, right? Paul, is, he's handing the mantle to Timothy. For the ministry, he says, guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which is entrusted to you. And the treasure, of course, is the truth. 2 Timothy 2.2, he continues, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. This church, he's entrusted this to faithful men, John, myself, and Conrad. And we implore you We've entrusted this with you. Go get, take your responsibility to guard it. Two things. Guard it and pass it on to somebody. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this time together. And um, it's whatever the issues in society, Lord, we know that if we can go to your word, if we will go to your word, you will point us to things that are true and things that are not true. Lord, uh, encourage us and, and fill us with your spirit, Lord, to be seekers of truth in your word and that we would, we would contend earnestly for the faith in love, but we would contend earnestly for the faith by showing people, thus saith the word of the Lord. Father, we ask um, that you would just, just guide our steps, guide our thoughts this week as we move forward through the week. And Lord, allow us to have our spiritual antennas up and alert so that when we come across those that 
we know need to hear the word of God or maybe just need a kind word. Lord, that we're walking in the spirit and not walking in the flesh. Lord, allow us to tune our hearts each morning that we would walk in the spirit so that we would look around and see the things you want us to do each and every day and we would embrace it. We would embrace those things for the glory of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.